This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Apollo Houston, I got two messages for you. Moscow is go for docking. Houston is go for docking. It's up to you guys. 1975 arrived and tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union seemed to be thawing. The Apollo-Soyuz mission was hailed as a sign of a new era of peace and cooperation. Many years to open this door to useful cooperation in space between our two countries. And I'm confident But the day is not far off when space missions made possible by this first joint effort will be more or less commonplace. And may I say in signing off, here's to a soft landing. High in Earth's orbit, modules from each side joined up and astronauts and cosmonauts shook hands, signaling the promise of what lie ahead. Our next meeting will be on the ground. With a final goodbye, the astronauts of Apollo and the cosmonauts of Soyuz ended their historic meeting in space. Despite this public display of cooperation, Moscow was privately making plans for a new wave of espionage, and they needed the best of the best to infiltrate enemy territory. Back home in Germany, Albrecht Dietrich was about to begin his own adventure. Moscow sent an agent to evaluate Albrecht and determine his path forward. I had a visitor come from from the center, uh, and Nikolai showed up with this guy from Moscow. And, you know, we were talking, and he, he asked me, so how's your English? And I said, when I pulled a book off a shelf, and I said, I can read this. It was a novel. I can read this without a dictionary. And his eyes got bigger, huh? It was about like nine months after I started in, uh, studying. He says, oh, wait a minute. How about uh, we're going to give you a tape recorder and you just say something, you know, freeform, say something in English. The tape was sent back to Moscow. And soon after, Nikolai shared some exciting news with Albrecht. Nikolai says, they want you in Moscow. They want to determine how good your English is. The trip to Moscow added yet another unknown to Albrecht's already uncertain future. But first, he would have to survive his flight. So that's when I got on a plane for the first time. Jeez, it was scary as hell. <laughs> first of all, in those days, you dressed up when you got on a plane. You suit and tie. That plane, it was Aeroflot, was almost empty. There were maybe seven, I think there were seven other guys next to me. They were all guys. Before we started, the pilot said, please all gather in the front. We need the weight in the front. Now, that's a scary thing for somebody who flies for the first time. He says, oh, my God. And as this thing takes off, these guys were drinking heavily, and they were joking. And every time there was some, you know, a plane makes a lot of noises. In flight, and, and as, as it lifts off, and the wheels are pulled back, and it goes, boom. And I was scared out of my mind. <laughs> and I smoked one cigarette after another in those days. And you could smoke anywhere on a plane. It was, oh, my God. In spite of all his fears, Albrecht arrived in Moscow for a short stay. I spent like probably two days in Moscow. I, I met a bona fide American, a lady, who had 
the poor judgment to determine that she wanted to live in Moscow. Poor woman. I think there must have been a love affair with the, with the Soviet military, KGB, whatever. She was married to a Russian. So I met her and a young lady who was introduced as a professor at Moscow University, also known as Lomonosov University, which was to a large extent a training route for the KGB. She was KGB. You know, we just talked, the three of us. And after about an hour, they disappeared. And I had some, some dinner with uh, a couple of guys. And Sergei, was, who was going to be my handler, was there. And the next morning, they came back and they shared the result. question was that the two ladies were asked, do you think he can learn English well enough to cover up his German accent? Can he get rid of his German accent to the extent possible so he can pretend to actually be an American? The answer by the professor was, well, first of all, no way would I ever allow him to go as an English person. That's too hard. But even American, he just doesn't have the right attitude yet. He's still like a citizen of East Germany. But the American in true form said, yeah, I think so. Well, give it a try. Americans are not so uptight about things. Albrecht had passed yet another test, and he headed back to Germany, full of anticipation as to what might come next. Now it's clear that I would be moving to Moscow soon. And so Nikolai was, was aware of that. Maybe it was a month in between. I was now in a holding pattern. I wasn't going to West Germany anymore. I was going to get two more years of training. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Alden Ehrenreich. This is The Agent. I was on a one-way street. I needed to go to the United States. She could not be allowed to interfere with that. There was no turning back. It was clear that I was going to become Henry Van Randall. Soviet troops were all over the place in Afghanistan today. Neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. They were afraid that Ronald Reagan might want to accelerate the end of the world. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I created for myself an artificial dual personality. I had two of them. The spy job got in, in the way of my real job. I knew that the FBI would never find me. I had a dream one night. I think I need to look for him again. I need to find him. Chapter 4, Belly of the Beast. The KGB had finally revealed their plans to Albrecht. He was to learn English, continue his training as an agent, and eventually be sent into enemy territory into the United States. His training was to take place in Moscow. Nikolai told me that once it was decided that I move, move to Moscow to train American English, that that's, that's the plan, the United States, absolutely. And so I knew this from, from day one as I arrived in Moscow. I mean, you, you can't have a better incentive than that for the career that I had chosen. That would give me an opportunity to go to other places like France and Italy and so forth. I wasn't particularly interested in West Germany, but the United States, my goodness. San Francisco, New York, I mean, that's the, that's, that's the big time. And not, not only that, as an agent to go there, 
Now I'm not just an elite KGB agent, I'm the elite of the elite. Flattery, adventure, and incentive to work my behind off to perfect my English to the extent possible. Albrecht had not told his girlfriend Gerlinda the truth about what he did at the State Department, much less that it was a lie. She had no clue that he was training to become an agent for the KGB. Nor had he told Nikolai about Gerlinda for fear of angering him again about another one of his secret relationships. The planned move to Moscow triggered what Albrecht had known all along. He would need to end it with Gerlinda. I needed to go to Moscow to, to study English. The hardest thing I ever did was to say goodbye to Gerlinda. I can't think of something that was more painful because it ripped my heart out, but apparently I didn't love her enough to give up my career for her. I was on a one-way street that way. That had to be done. I had to get through with it. So it was an evening that I was at her place, and then I told her that it, it was over between the two of us because I was moving to Moscow as a diplomat. We weren't married, therefore she couldn't come. I told her that a long-term, long-distance relationship I didn't feel was right. It was too painful, so that was it. I still remember she was half lying on a couch. She had black stockings on and a sweater. And as I'm talking to her, she just... It felt like she was shriveling up. And... I got up, left the place, and didn't look back. So that was the exact opposite of how I felt when I met her. That was the exact opposite. But you know what? And this is the, the hardness in me that uh, the moment I was on the plane to Moscow, she was out of my mind. It was not part of my life anymore. It's almost like, like ripping off that, uh, that Band-Aid real fast and the pain is gone. It's not, it's not something one can be proud of because it's unfeeling to an extreme, but it's still sort of the way I, the, the, the person I became from childhood on. And it took me many, many years to overcome all of this. I wouldn't do something like this today. I couldn't. I had a choice. Start working on a farm and marrying Galinda or, or continuing on the path to Moscow and eventually the United States. There was no going back. One of the darkest chapters, if not the darkest chapter of my life. Albrecht was devastated and heartbroken to tell Galinda goodbye, but he convinced himself that he needed to move on. His attention shifted to his two-year stint in Moscow. And it was the end of October when I actually then went to Moscow f for sure. And my goodness, it was already uh, negative Celsius temperatures. It was already ice cold. <laughs> so I get there and I'm like, wow, this is just awesome. Bigger and, you know, it's very impressive. We, we get in a limo. And uh, we were driving south on, I think, Leningradsky Prospekt. It is one of those main arteries. And it goes directly towards the Red Square. And as we're driving down there, the guy is speeding like a maniac. And he's passing all kinds of people. And so I asked uh, Sergei, I said, what's going on? Is he allowed to speed? He said, 
We got special license plates. Hey, it's another instance where I thought I was special, right? <laughs> and the Red Square is lit at night, and it was in the evening. And well, wow. So, you know, I see that, that street, that, uh, that main artery with those massive buildings left and right, the Red Square. That's one heck of a place. And I'm going to be here for two years. The end of October, and in those days, fall in Berlin, it would be in the 50s. So, and I had a light jacket on. That's all I had. And I did have a, uh, a coat in my suitcase, but I went out with that light brown jacket. And as I'm wandering around in the city, I, it gets chilly. I said, well, this is really cold. And then somewhere I, I spotted a big thermometer on a building and it showed something like 22. <laughs> Now I know why I'm cold. And that was the beginning of a long winter. Uh, I had to go and buy myself one of those fur hats where you uh, have the flaps that you can put over the ears. Occasionally you got cold enough where you couldn't take deep breaths. Uh, you breathe uh, shallow. And this was the only time I ever wore long underwear. Just the ugliest piece of garment that you can imagine, like especially, especially the, the uh, ill-constructed variants that we had in East Germany. <laughs> But you had to. But, uh, you know, you, you manage. Though he felt like a stranger in a strange land, he knew just enough Russian. And, like he always did, Albrecht quickly adapted to the environment around him. The first foreign language that we learned was, was mandatory Russian in school, starting in sixth grade. So we're talking about six years of school Russian and a little bit at university. So I, I knew how to read the Russian alphabet, the Cyrillic alpha, alphabet. And that, that's number one. It's really important. And I knew a lot of words. So I was able to get around, find my way, uh, even go to a restaurant and order some food, you know, stumble through it. If my trainer didn't speak German or English, uh, Sergei was always there to translate. Okay, I was not there to learn Russian. Period. Albrecht was often left to his own devices. He was lonely and looked for activities to help pass the time. There were only my instructors, me, and eventually, I, out of desperation, I started watching television. That's it. Lonely, alone. Since he spoke very little Russian, sports was one of the rare treats he watched on TV. Albrecht watched nearly every hockey game that was broadcast. Spartak Moscow was his favorite team. They represented the trade union and were led by superstar Alexander Yakashev. Henderson losing it to Zadran, a roller right in front, they score! Yakashev cutting right in front to make it 7-3. I started watching movies, and there were some old movies, and I still remember this one movie. <laughs> It was, it was so inspiring. It was black and white. It took place in the revolutionary times. Uh, it was a young man who was a factory worker and how he got engaged in the revolution and he made his way. And it was very, it was very optimistic. <laughs> Тревожную, да. 
And that song stuck in my head. And, and he would sing this every time something good happens to him. That was so, so inspiring. Very emotional, very revolutionary. And, you know, that helped a little bit with my loneliness. <laughs> Without that enthusiasm, it would have been really hard for me to, to, to be all by myself in Moscow. There was no basketball team. There was no female companion. There was no friends. Had no social interaction because I didn't even speak the language. The, the goal that I had in mind kept me doing this and not complaining about it at all. So lately, I've been on a mission to change the way people view their finances and to encourage people to overcome obstacles and adversity. It's just more and more important to me every day. So I've teamed up with the folks at Life Surge. Life Surge is a one-day faith-based event where you'll walk in hungry for success and you'll leave ready to build your resources to leave an impact on others. We're talking faith-fueled finance, growing resources, crushing obstacles, and then, yeah, using it all for something way bigger than yourself. I'll be joining Life Surge in Cincinnati on Saturday, August 3rd. Joining me in Cincinnati is Nick Vujicic, the man with no arms or legs that speaks about his trials and triumphs, soul surfer and author Bethany Hamilton, Duck Dynasty's Willie Robertson, and author and pastor Craig Groeschel, star of CNBC's The Prophet, Marcus Lemonis, and Bethel Music. That's Life Surge, Cincinnati, on Saturday, August 3rd. Tickets are on sale exclusively at lifesurge.com. I hope to see you there. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. During their time together in Moscow, Sergei and Albrecht had developed a friendship. Though he did not know anything about his new friend, Albrecht enjoyed the time they spent together. One day, Sergei showed up at Albrecht's apartment with a big surprise. They were going to visit Lenin's tomb. In those days, Lenin was still revered like you wouldn't believe. It's almost like Christians revere Jesus. That was the father of the revolution, the father of this country. I passed through the Red Square many times on my travels through the city, and there was always a long line, always, no matter when. The line just wrapped around the block, and you didn't see the end of it. I don't know how long it took to get from the back to actually see Lenin, probably several hours. So then one day, Sergei said, I managed to get us to see Vladimir Lenin, and we don't have to get online. The line was to the right of us, and he showed something. And the guard says, please, and you slowly walk into the mausoleum. The light was very dim. 
yellow, and there was a old man Lennon lying in a glass uh, case. And this was the most unimpressive event one could ever imagine. He looked like a wax figure. You know, the skin was yellowish, like parchment, lifeless. Lennon was a short guy, and, uh, you know, lying there, he didn't get any taller. You walked us slowly around, and you looked at him, and I walked out of there empty. I mean, I, I didn't lose my admiration for Lennon, but I thought it was, like, really sort of almost ghoulish to, to look at that dead revolutionary. This did not help me in increasing my fervor for the cause did not. To keep Albrecht entertained, Sergei periodically procured tickets to events that were only accessible to the privileged. Being part of the KGB, it seemed, was full of exclusive perks. You had to have connections. For the Bolshoi itself, as well as for performers from the West, you had to have connections to get in. At halftime, they had snacks, caviar and champagne. Uh, it, was, it was the elite that uh, would be able to partake of those events. Two of those events featured Americans. One was a theater troupe performing Our Town, the idealized play about America and the American dream, an unusual choice for such a grand Russian theater house. A theater troupe came over, and the play was Our Town. And, well, of course, you know, for me, since I was learning English, they thought it was a good idea, so they got me a ticket to our town. I went there by myself. This play is called Our Town. It's written by Thornton Wilder. Here I could finally benefit from my knowledge of English. It was great. I could understand everything that they were saying. Nice town, you know what I mean? Nobody very remarkable ever come out of it, as far as we know. Albrecht also saw the legendary country music star Roy Clark perform in person. Clark and an entourage of American artists were in Moscow as part of a cultural exchange between the two countries. Albrecht saw the appeal of America through these performances, but couldn't really know if this was the America he would experience in his expected future travels there. The Roy Clark event, it made sense. I was going to be an American, so I might as well get a flavor while I'm still in Moscow. A lot of young people in the audience, very enthusiastic. In those days, it was like you know, anybody who came from, from the United States was immediately lionized. There was this suppressed yearning to learn about the world, not just the Soviet Union. There was more fluidity. Russians, if they had the means, could travel to the United States as tourists. Very few had the means. So any, anybody who came from, from the United States over was immediately a celebrity, even if they weren't performers. One day, Sergei approached Albrecht with very good news. The leadership had approved for Albrecht to meet a husband and wife team by the name of Peter and Helen. Sergei told Albrecht, they are real Americans and they have served our cause extremely well. Beyond that, please do not ask any questions. So, we make our way to that apartment, and they come on in, happy, happy, so happy to meet somebody who speaks English, who meet somebody who, who will carry the torch. They knew I was going to be an illegal in the United States. They were just like really very lively and, you know, I have some tea and cookies and we talked. 
So I spent about two hours, and then periodically I was able to go back to visit. Many years later, Albrecht learned the truth about Peter and Helen. They were actually Morris and Lana Cohen, American citizens born, brought up in the United States, uh, uh, joined the Communist Party early on. Lana Cohen was uh, introduced to me as uh, Helen. She was a clever woman. She had street smarts like you wouldn't believe, New York-type street smarts. Very bright, very quick. She operated primarily as a courier, where she would have several meetings with a very young physicist, Theater Hall, who had knowledge of uh, bits and pieces of what it took to produce a nuclear weapon. She was 19 years old at the time, a genius. In 1945, Lona went to Santa Fe for a special meeting with Theodore Hall. She was to go to the university town to meet a young fellow. That's rare audio of Morris Cohen describing the secret mission his wife Lona embarked on to smuggle nuclear secrets out of New Mexico's Los Alamos labs. Lona did get the materials from Hall and, upon leaving the facility, had to improvise to make sure officers didn't find the plans hidden on her. So what she does, she had the piece of paper in the box of Kleenex. And as she's pulling stuff out of her handbag, she told the officer, could you please hold this? He didn't look at the Kleenex. That woman was phenomenal. <laughs> Theodore Hall's report was saved, and the Soviet spy network narrowly missed being exposed. And a few years later, they uh, reappeared in England under a, uh, um, an idea that made them come from New Zealand. They were working with uh, a fellow named Gordon Lonsdale. That was his, his, his English uh, name. He was actually a born Russian who grew up bilingual. Lonsdale operated aspiring in Portland. In the port of Portland, there was some very secret research going on, uh, su submarine-type research. That spiring did a lot of damage. Eventually, they were busted. All three of them went to jail. I believe uh, the Cohens spent like eight years in jail before they were exchanged and then were sent back to Moscow where they spent the rest of their lives. Occasionally working with somebody like me for some training. They were very, very, very happy to, to meet me because their Russian wasn't that good. They could hand over everything that they learned. Like a relay race, you get the baton, you carry on. When I met them, they were still 100% convinced that the communist cause was the only one worth serving. They were taken care of. They had a really, really nice apartment right in the center of Moscow with the best furniture you could get in those days in the Soviet Union. Peter was the talkative one. He, he told me a lot of things, how he grew up and how he played football in college and then they joined the party. They came back to the United States and then left the Communist Party and then started working with the KGB. They fundamentally operated as uh, couriers in those days, they had two-way co communication through radio, through shortwaves. But in order to send something to Moscow, you needed to have a really powerful, big antenna. Under the cover of being uh, rare booksellers, they bought themselves a nice house in the, in the suburbs and uh, installed a, this, this massive antenna in the attic. And this is where they transmitted a lot of the materials back to Moscow. 
And, you know, eventually they were caught. And, and Peter told me a lot about what it was like in jail. I really didn't know that I was dealing with two individuals who actually participated in changing history. If the Soviets had not gotten the atomic secret, if they had not gotten the, uh, their own atomic weapon as early as they did, the whole post-war uh, development might have changed quite a bit because the Soviet Union was in many respects weak, economically, militarily. I mean, they had lost so many capable men. The nuclear weapons made them an instant superpower. I think they would have fallen apart much sooner without that weapon. Albrecht and Peter often took walks together around Moscow. We were wandering around uh, and on his walks, and there was this building that looked empty and vacated, and I, I said to him, I wonder if they're going to ironball this down. Wrecking ball. But I, I, I used it as a verb, ironball it down. And we went back inside, and he blew up in my face. Says, Are you crazy? You can't do that. You need to be very careful when and how you use the language. He was exploding in my face. And the man from day one, as nice as he was and as, uh, as, as childlike his behavior was, he also had an iron will. His psych psychological energy was vastly bigger than mine. When you get blasted by somebody like that, you want to go and you know, find yourself a rat hole to <laughs> crawl into. Albrecht considered the price the couple had paid spending eight years in prison. He was reminded that he too could be caught and imprisoned while on his mission to America, but he also was reassured by the fact that the KGB did everything possible to get their agents back. I knew that there was considerable risk that I might wind up in jail, but I also had confidence that A, I wouldn't die because I figured I was psychologically pretty strong myself, and B, they would get me out eventually, and then, then I would be a hero. As Albrecht got more and more familiar with Moscow and established a daily routine for himself, he started feeling more comfortable in his loneliness, until he received an unexpected message from his past. His mother wanted to come visit, and she would arrive in two weeks. Albrecht had received a message from his past. His mother was coming to visit. She could not be allowed to discover the true purpose of his work in Moscow. Albrecht and his handler, Sergei, devised a plan. So my cover story was, and it was still consistent because I went to Berlin uh, telling her that I, I joined the Foreign Service, their Department of State. And uh, when we moved to Moscow, the explanation was easier. I went with the East German embassy. That worked out pretty well, except this one, one day I get a letter that says, hey, we're, we're going to come to Moscow. Me and she was remarried at the time. Panic! <laughs> because if she wanted to see, meet me at the embassy, I wouldn't have been there. And we couldn't have arranged with the East German embassy. They would have asked all kinds of questions. Well, why are we doing this? This would not have worked. By the rules of conspiracy, we had to find a different way. 
Now, what was in our favor was neither she nor her husband spoke Russian. They couldn't operate by themselves. They couldn't even read the, the, the Cyrillic alphabet. So they were part of a group, right? In those days, East Germans traveled in groups a lot. It had something to do with supervision, too. You know, there was probably always some Stasi guy in the group to make sure that, you know, people behaved. Albrecht had to keep his mother away from his apartment. The KGB did not need any questions asked. They couldn't see my apartment either. So we had to protect that. So we came up with this idea that uh, it, uh, my apartment was being renovated. Spent, uh, I think, two nights in a hotel. They were in Moscow for only two days. My liaison, Sergei, and I made sure that we kept them busy. We took them to the Bolshoi. There used to be this permanent exhibit in a big park where each one of the, the states of the Soviet Union had its own pavilion and stuff like that. And we showed them, you know, the Red Square. They were really busy as tourists. We took them to decent restaurants. So damage was avoided. But there was a problem. Like any tourist, Albrecht's mother wanted a picture. Now, the real problem was when uh, she at one point asked to have a picture taken with me and Sergei. Sergei winced because that was a no-no. He was KGB and being photographed with me, but he couldn't, he couldn't get out of it. So I have this one picture where me, my mother, and Sergei are in the same picture. Though his cover had not been blown, this episode proved to be motivation to create a better cover story for the years ahead. After this visit, after this unexpected visit that caused us a lot of trouble, we sat down and figured out we need to do, we need to change the cover story. We need to make me less accessible. And that's when we came up with this move to Kazakhstan and getting back to my first love chemistry. That was, of course, uh, made up, but it was credible for her. And she sort of liked the, the whole idea that I went back to science. In order to make this really credible, the, the center produced a document. In translation, this, the German text went something like this. In the spirit of deepening the brotherly cooperation of our countries, the strengthening of the friendship among our people, and especially the continuing growth of our countries in the area of space exploration, Comrade Albrecht Dietrich is herewith appointed for a duration of five years to the position of research scientist for the project Intercosmos 77, signed by the head of the Human Resource Department with a Russian signature. There's no such thing, never was something like Intercosmos 77. Now, in those days, it wasn't that easy to find out. There was no internet. Could have existed. How do you know it doesn't? So you could make up things like that. And that was an official-looking document that clearly uh, indicated to my mother that this was real. Now I'm in Kazakhstan. I'm in a, in a super-secret installation. That area was known to be very secret, right, uh, where, where Russian space uh, exploration took place. Training center. Here they are awarded their prizes and diplomas. The years will go by, and some of them... As a foreigner, you couldn't go anywhere near this place. And even as a, as a Russian a Soviet national, you had to have special permission. So it was highly, highly secret and well-guarded. ...pad into space. 
into engineering, into science. So far, Telephones in those days, my mother didn't have a telephone, so I couldn't even call her. But I also made sure that she understood there was no outgoing phone calls allowed anyway. So the only way that we could communicate was via the mail. This is a very hard cutoff. She would continue to write letters to a post office box in Moscow, and I could write letters back. When Albrecht bade goodbye to his mother in Moscow, he had no idea this would be the last time they would see each other. The cover story had worked. Once again, Albrecht moved on. This is uh, where my emotional coldness stepped in. I honestly didn't care. This may sound harsh, and it's not an excuse, but it is some explanation. We didn't have a loving relationship. We were emotionally never close. I appreciated all the things that she had done for me. And at one point, even when I was in college, I wrote her a letter, a thank you letter, saying, you know, I, I really appreciate all the things that you've done for me, particularly when our father uh, left the family and she carried me and, and uh, my brother. But that was intellectual, it wasn't emotional. So it's unfortunate that that bond between uh, mother and son was one-sided. She was the victim of her own lack of emotional maturity, and she was not the one responsible for that. It was her parents, it was the war, it was the poverty after the end of the war. It was very difficult to, be, to become an emotionally mature person in that time. So we, in some respect, we were victimized by, by history and where we grew up. I was on a one-way street. I needed to go to the United States. She could not be allowed to interfere with that. There was no turning back. One day, this fellow Alex shows up. He had spent some time in the United States as a KGB agent under diplomatic cover. He thought he knew everything about the United States. To me, he was the expert. And he participated in planning my development and the launch eventually. He became a really important figure to me. So he shows up and he says, you know, one thing we need to do, we, we need to make sure that you don't go into the United States cold. We want you to uh, experience a country that is close enough to the United States that it could be considered like another state of the United States, Canada. So you're going to go to Canada for three months. Albrecht was to travel to Canada and get a feel for what it was like to live in a country that the Soviets considered a mini USA. His main task, return from this mission with a birth certificate of a deceased American named Henry Van Randall. And, and also they wanted me to find two or three bots where dead drops could be executed. But the most important task, other than mingling with people and, and learning life in the West, uh, right next to the United States, the most important task was to obtain the birth certificate of one Henry Van Randall. It was clear that I was going to become Henry Van Randall. They knew that this fellow died as a child. And this was very typical how the KGB stole identities. They would find 
young men or women who passed away like very early as children and then find a way to get the birth certificate and bingo I was going to be Henry Van Randall next time on the agent the moment I got on the plane I forgot all about her I left her behind I was going to morph into some other person I created for myself an artificial dual personality I had two of them she knew I was going to be an illegal and she knew the country I was going to operate in that's it no more she didn't ask and I didn't tell this was a tensest minutes maybe 15 20 minutes of my life and it appears then the Americans notified Canadian authorities that something is fishy about this guy that's like somebody screaming at me you idiot <laughs> they were chasing ghosts they were chasing people who'd adopted the identities of babies children who died in some cases hiding the fact that you were really a Russian spy so they really were ghosts the agent is a production of imperative entertainment in association with Windjoy and is created, written, produced, and edited by Jason Hoke. Narration by Alden Ehrenreich. Executive producers are Jason Hoke, Jack Barsky, and Alden Ehrenreich. Sound engineering and additional editing by Shane Freeman. Our original score by Joshua Cleave. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. If you'd like to learn more about this story, make sure to read Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Entangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America by Jack Barsky. Have questions? Email us at podcast at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love this show, tell your friends and leave us a positive review. Thanks again for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.